This week, I got a super cool opportunity to take a deep dive into the fascinating world of air traffic control with Perth Air Traffic Control Line Manager, Barry Dijon. This is a really great opportunity to understand how air traffic control actually works and provide some of the insight into something that we all take for granted when we go on holiday but don't know so much about. A veteran of 38 years in the career, Barry tells the story of how he became an air traffic controller and some of the major changes he's seen in the role over the years. He also talks about how he's kept himself motivated in the same career for such a long time. It was through discussing what are the key skills of an air traffic controller and how they can be transferred to everyday life that we really yielded some of the fascinating insights and context about decision making and about not overthinking things, something I think we're all guilty of from time to time. Barry's wisdom from years of service really do shine through and you'll be struck by his enormous gratitude for the opportunities his career and his life in Western Australia has provided him. We also discuss the importance of having personal goals outside of work to keep us motivated and fresh. And Barry talks through some of his numerous personal achievements as he talks through his running marathons and Ironman triathlons and also a solo swim to Rockless like myself. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this podcast. So enjoy Barry. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today we're going to get into the world of air traffic control with my guest, Barry Dijon. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. So Barry, you were originally born in Western Australia. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about what it was like for you growing up here in WA. So, um, born in 1961, uh, pretty much to an immigrant family. Uh, father was Dutch, uh, mum was Italian. Uh, we grew up um, in Gosnells, which is to the east of Perth. Uh, and it was kind of country there so we we just did what kids did which was play outside and and mucked around and and did all those sorts of things um and then um as obviously as we got a little bit older then school kind of took over all of that and um my schooling was uh, at a catholic uh, through catholic education um st francis xavier and eastwick park and then did my final two years at trinity and from there i uh, moved on to university there you go. And um, you have been away and worked away, but come back to Western Australia. It's very much your home. I had a significant opportunity um, to, um, through work, to have a couple of opportunities away from Perth. Uh, one was in the mid-1980s, spent two years in Port Hedland, where I met my, where I met my wife. And, um, uh, and the next part to that journey was after we got married in 1990. Um, in 1991, we shifted and worked in the Middle East for five years. Yeah, super. And what does it mean to you to be a West Australian? Are you a proud West Aussie? Or? Uh, proud and at times, when necessary, a little bit parochial. <laughs> um, I honestly believe uh, that uh, we are extremely fortunate here. Um, we, uh, Julie and I have a, have a good life. Um, but uh, we are also fortunate enough to be able to travel extensively and, as I said, spend some time away living overseas. And uh, there's no question in my mind that Perth is probably one of the best places on the planet to live. Why is that for you? Uh, I just think it gives opportunity, um, weather. Uh, I say to all my mad triathlete friends and, and, and swimming buddies and cycling buddies, if you're anywhere in the world, I mean, we're sitting here overlooking the river, the Swan River, um, we're, you know, 10 minutes from the beach, 
if you're anywhere in the world on holidays, this would be just idyllic. Yeah. And so that's where we live. And although our weather um, can get a little bit hot, uh, it's certainly not extreme. If you talk to people who live in the snow, uh, when you discuss what our winter is like, um, you know, they kind of scoff at us a little bit. Yeah. Uh, when you look at our winter days, our fine winter days can be 14, 15 degrees, but they're still nice. Um, um, so, yes, very fortunate. I think we live, we live in an ideal climate in, a, in one of the best places in the world. Indeed. So for the listeners, can you give them a brief overview of your role and your responsibilities at Perth Airport? So currently um, I'm a manager in Perth Tower. Um, I uh, am one of the two managers in Perth Tower. Uh, My peer is a a guy called Shane Stopp. So Shane and I manage the tower. We have 26 staff who work there providing the service for air traffic control in the tower. Um, And just to provide a little bit of context about what service we provide, uh, the control tower is responsible for um, the movement of uh, aeroplanes and air traffic on the ground. And uh, so we look after the taxiways and the runways and uh, make sure that um, the aircraft land and take off safely. Uh, We don't actually own any airspace. So, uh, and have been doing that for um, four years now, I guess. And just prior to that, I was um, the manager at um, Jandicott Tower. So I was manager at Jandicott Tower for six years. Right. And next January, you'll have been in this career for 38 years, is that right? So 1981 is when (laughs) I joined. And I just think about that um, occasionally and reflect on that. It's quite extraordinary because that's kind of two lifetimes. Um, and to have anyone in, in a career that length of time is, is um, unusual, I think. Uh, the good thing for me is, firstly, air traffic control is a great job. Um, talking to aeroplanes, uh, it's interesting, at times can be exciting, at times can be mundane, um, but uh, very, very interesting job and I, I'm quite blessed to have been through my journey. Uh, but 30, 30 nine years, 38 years, long time. Um, and um, I've probably still got a little bit left. Uh, I, miss, I miss actually controlling traffic to a degree. Um, so the management path is something that's very interesting and, and does motivate me too. But uh, if anyone asks me what I do, I'm still an air traffic controller. Yeah. Um, but 30, 38 years. So January to 1981 is when I first joined. Yeah. I mean, I, I did a podcast um, few months back with a, a guy called Brody McCulloch who runs Space Cubed on the terrace. <clears throat> we were talking about the future of work and how most people um, are entering the world of work or been in the world of work for anywhere between five or ten years are looking at anywhere between I think it was like five and eight different careers in front of them. Yet, you, yet you've worked in the same thing for 38 years so that's going to become more of an anomaly years to come. I, I think so I, and I look at some of my staff who are in their 20s and 30s and do wonder that too but the job the job interestingly enough can be varied enough to keep people uh, interested and um, and within the organization there's also opportunities like I had working overseas so although I said I'm manager in Perth Tower um, we've got different facets of air traffic control so you've got radar control uh, part of that is the approach and departures, which is closer into the airports, and then you've got the en route as well, which is where the aeroplanes generally fly hmm. at altitude. So there's varying, and, and different locations too. So as I said earlier, a couple of years in Port Hedland, 
uh, five years overseas. So there's probably enough to keep people stimulated through their career. And um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work um, in, in most aspects of ATC as well and, uh, and have had the different locations. So when I look at the young staff, I think, well, you know, if they move on, um, that's good for them. But I also think air traffic control does give you um, certain skill sets uh, that other people might uh, be interested in. So, um, and I, if people do change their career and vary their career, uh, and if that's right for them, I think that's good. Mm. I was going to ask you about the skill set. We'll jump into that in a bit. So, but first, tell me, how did you get into it? Um, so, I was at, um, well, it used to be called the West Australian Institute of Technology, now Curtin Uni. Uh, left school, um, thought I was doing the right thing by doing a double major in computer programming and systems analysis. Uh, in, in, um, at that time in the late 80s, uh, that was kind of the career, computing. Um, no great interest, uh, but it was just more of a good choice, I thought. Uh, but going Sensible, back... a logical choice. Yeah, exactly right. And, and go, but going back one step, um, I, uh, I've always... Uh, um, my, my wonderful parents have given me the travel bug. So I've always wanted to travel. And um, I thought that um, uh, I wanted to become a pilot uh, purely and simply because of the travel, not because of a great interest in aviation. Uh, that didn't transpire. So I um, started, started going to wait and doing my degree. And um, I, then I was, uh, happened to meet somebody who was apply, whose brother was applying for air traffic control. And I thought, air traffic control, aeroplanes, travel. So that was the connect. Um, I left. And it was no deeper than that. There was no deeper than that. And uh, I left with um, three subjects short of my degree um, and um, joined the, one of the many iterations of uh, the company that I've worked for because in those days uh, we were Department of Transport, I think, uh, and we were public servants and, um, and, and joined. And I only recently in the last few years asked my mum um, because well, I think I was 19 at the time. What did you think about the fact that I left 80s, uh, left uh, uni to go to um, to become an air traffic controller? And she said, uh, "Sounded like a good job. Sounded like you knew your, knew what you were doing." And um, as we've already discussed, here I am, um, 38 years later, mm. and have not 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 enjoyed one minute of it. It's been it's been terrific. So serendipity, I guess, but um, it was it's been great. So what? has kept you motivated over 38 years? Yeah. Interesting question. I think that... Uh, that must have changed. It, it has. And look, I, I think, you know, you, you touched on technology uh, just before. Um, uh, in, in the early 1990s, the sort of type of technology that we, we were using was adequate. Um, and... Um, but has changed significantly over the years. Um, we yeah. have, um, I mean, it, it has gone in leaps and bounds, I guess, to a degree from what we describe as raw radar, which is where you're looking at a radar signal that is basically painting everything it sees, to a, uh, a computer-generated um, display which filters all that out and, and then shows us what we would like to see, plus a few bells and whistles to help us with safety. Um, to uh, the next iteration that we're going to, which is going to be that and more. Um, we, so it's not only it's not only has been the interest in seeing the changes in technology, um, it's also the fact that um, over the years it's got 
I guess, to a degree, a little bit busier. The technology helps with that. Um, but again, as I said before, it's also the case of um, having the opportunity to different, do different facets and, um, and uh, be able to have the opportunity to uh, work overseas and work up north and, and then contribute in other areas within our organisation. Mm. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that um, there's always going to be planes around. They're always going to need to land safely. So I suppose at the heart, the job stays the same, but just the way you approach it. There's always going to be, I guess, looking forward, um, people, people often ask, is there going to be a need for no pilots? Is there going to be a need for no air traffic controllers? And I can't see that on the horizon yet. Certainly the technology will be there. It's kind of like driverless, driverless cars. The technology is there, but it's whether the public appetite is there for to be able to sit on an aeroplane that's not being flown by a pilot and know mm. that on the other end, sitting behind a radar screen, there's nobody. Yeah. Um, there's certainly lots of technology in aircraft and in the ATC system that will prevent aircraft collisions, but whether or not it provides the appropriate amount of safety um, that, that, will be, uh, that will play out in the future. But... Uh, Given, given that we already do most of the air traffic control from two centres in Australia, in Melbourne and Brisbane. Yeah, could you uh, just, for the listeners, I was very fortunate enough to be invited up to the tower a couple of weeks ago and, and you were telling me how there's different parts controlled by different centres, so could you share that with the listener? So, uh, to come from the bigger picture down to, the, um, uh, to what we do in Perth Tower, uh, Australian airspace uh, is, is probably the largest piece of airspace in the world. Um, we call them flight information regions, uh, and ours is split up into two from uh, from about Sydney up to the northwest and Western Australia, and everything to the northeast of that is controlled by from Brisbane Centre, and everything to the southwest of that is controlled from Melbourne Centre. Um, so when you come down to Perth, uh, we control from Perth the approach departures um, unit controls out to 36 miles, and then everything outside that is done from Melbourne Centre. Yeah. Then uh, when the aircraft comes into land, that's when Perth Tower takes over. So, so what, when the wheels are coming down? When the wheels are coming down or as when they're taxiing out to take off. Yeah. So when they, to, to give you a small flight thread, when an aircraft taxis out, we talk to them, um, we make sure the runway is clear, we clear them for takeoff, and then uh, we hand them straight over to Perth Departures. They make sure that uh, everything... They're also located in Perth. They're also located in Perth. So then they uh, look after that aircraft for a, a short period of time and then within 36 miles they'll transfer them from Melbourne Centre. So when you look at that basic piece of technology, the fact that we can control aeroplanes from remote areas, yeah. that's probably um, the next uh, improvement that we will see. And in, in my job, uh, the tower environment, currently in the tower environment, the, uh, the next piece of technology which is being used uh, in, the, in the world is what we call uh, digital towers. So basically towers that don't have uh, people in them, um, they have cameras on them, and then there will be an air traffic controller sitting in a room somewhere else, right. and uh, they will have uh, high definition pictures where they'll do the air traffic control from a remote location. The benefit of that of course is that uh, you can have a number of towers manned from one location, uh, we have 29 towers around the country. Some of them are quite remote. Uh, in Western Australia alone, there's um, Caratha, Port Hedland and Broome, and uh, obviously all up and down the east coast as well, uh, mm. along with uh, in WA, we've got Perth Tower and Jandicott Tower too. 
So when you look at how many control towers we've got uh, and the remote uh, localities that they're in, it would make sense to try and get some uh, benefits by uh, having those people work in one location. Yeah. The technology is extraordinary. Uh, one of the next major towers to go is London City. Currently have more air traffic movements than Perth. Um, and um, they're going to be digitising their control tower. So again, done by humans, yeah. but just not in that environment. Not, uh, yeah. So picture picture a room with a whole heap of high-definition TVs. Um, uh, it can be 360 degrees, but not necessary. Um, so the aircraft will, will paint. It'll look like an aeroplane on the screen, because it is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, uh, it's actually the picture of what uh, the cameras are seeing. Um, but the benefit is that the, there will be a, um, a digitised tag on that aircraft. So yeah. the call sign, uh, it might have the altitude, it might have the airspeed. Uh, whereas we, when we look out of the control tower now, we don't see that, we just see the aircraft. So there, there's certainly significant improvements in that space too. Mm. And um, I remember when I came to the tower, you told me that originally it was pieces of paper that were handed from one person to another. So it's come so a long way. We have, and, and, and that's probably in the last few years in the tower environment, that's, um, that's the uh, latest piece of uh, technological upgrade. Um, we use uh, what we call INTAS, which is Integrated Tower Aviation Suite. Um, and yes, we used to have a, a quite a large, uh, long console in the tower, which all the information on each aircraft were written on paper strips. And to do what we needed to do, we would write on those strips and, um, and then and use those to um, separate aircraft and make sure that we uh, do what we need to do and provide the service that we need to provide. But now, as you saw, it's all digitised. It's, it's the best way I can describe it. It's like sitting in, a, in an aircraft with a glass cockpit. So mm. everything, everything, again, is done on um, large screens mm. and uh, therefore all the strips are now digital strips. It's all touchscreen. And um, with that, it gives you... Uh, the benefits of the additional uh, technology for safety, um, so we get some alerting functions because it, we're looking at a digital thing, not a not an and not an analog system. Hmm. So um, Perth itself, um, have we seen a, a, an increase in the amount of um, air traffic coming into the airport? So the media would tell you um, over the last period of time that we are probably 15 years ahead of predictive uh, air traffic movements, right. driven mainly by uh, the recent mining boom. And um, uh, so most of the mining in WA is now done by fly-in, fly-out. Yeah. Uh, so most of those people live in in fact, all over WA and sometimes in nascent states. So air traffic movements in Perth have, um, have risen substantially. Over the last two to three years, it's flattened out. Um, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. With Apex the boom? No, Apex the boom, but also the fact that um, uh, when, when mine sites come, on, come online, uh, they can use slightly bigger aircraft, so therefore less aircraft movement. So passenger numbers are still increasing, yeah. um, but uh, certainly air traffic has, has plateaued a little bit. And, but I mean, again, the media would suggest that the next mining boom is happening because of the amount of infrastructure that's in the pipeline for the yeah. Pilbara and, uh, and um, Midwest coasts, etc. So uh, I guess we'll see an increase in traffic. Mm. The technology aids with that, of course. Um, so whether it's the radar system that we're using or whether it's the INTAS system we're using in Perth Tower, yeah. it, it enables you to move more air traffic. 
Um, if I look back at my career, when I first started in the early 1980s, the radar, the radar was up at Kalamunda. The, um, the guys that used to sit up there only used to provide radar service if it was necessary. So if, if the aeroplanes were close together, they would get a phone call and say, can you help us out with these few aeroplanes? Now, that's obviously moved on now because um, we, we have aeroplanes pretty much all over, uh, all, all over the um, hours of the day. Uh, we still have peaks and trough, troughs at Perth, yeah. so the mining, the mining still drives most of what we do. In the mornings between uh, 5.30 and uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, we can have um, upwards of 70, 75 departures out of Perth. Of course, when they all leave, they all want to come back. Yep. Um, that starts about 10 o'clock and, and um, they, they start to come back into Perth and land, and then they do another... They do another little push in the early afternoon around two o'clock, um, head out again, and then they come back in the evening. So we have a few peaks and troughs, but we have systems in place. Uh, we have traffic management plans in place to try and flatten that out yep. because we can have six aircraft who want to leave at six o'clock in the morning. Now, that's not going to happen. And rather than having sitting um, on the taxiway uh, or waiting to push back, ready to go to taxi, um, we kind of flatten that out a bit by telling them exactly when they can and can't go. So there's systems in the background that do yeah. that. So I, I guess, you know, in, in the media we've seen a lot about the, the direct flight from Perth to London. That's probably just another plane compared to what goes on with the mining. Oh, this is going to sound a bit, sound a bit trite, but it is for me. It is for you. Yeah. It, it's, still, it's still amazing. I, yeah. I, I still look at aeroplanes, uh, particularly wide bodies, uh, whether A330s. Um, we don't have many 747s flying into Perth, but, um, you know, the 787. Um, the, the, it's extraordinary. You know, like I still find the whole thing amazing, seeing an aircraft yeah. um, move down the runway and get to a speed which does, doesn't look very fast and they're able to take off. And then to fly Perth to London direct, I think it's currently the third longest route in the world. Um, that's amazing. You know, like I, I still get amazed by what I'm involved in. Yeah. But um, as far as I'm concerned, it's still another aeroplane that I've got to make sure that gets away safely. Yes. And, uh, and make sure that um, we, we provide the appropriate service for that aircraft. Yeah. It's another dot. It's, it's a, it, it can be another dot. And to a degree, if you ask most air traffic controllers, they don't think of aeroplanes as... As, as things with, um, you know, 300 people on board, they think of them as, as just dots. It's not quite a computer game, but if yeah. you start to think about um, the lives involved, it would probably be a bit more stressful than it needs to be. Yeah. I read an article ages ago that it's supposed to be one of the most stressful jobs. Bryn, that's... Uh, people yeah, ask, when I came to the tower, it was like this. It's like this cathedral of serenity. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, uh, Bryn, for me, um, people ask me that a lot. And um, I, I think being a, a checkout person at Coles and Woolies can be as stressful. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the difference is the consequences of what can happen if yeah. things go wrong. And we tend not to think about that. We have, a, we have quite a robust safety management system. We have separation standards to make sure that we keep the aircraft appropriately apart. We have good training. Um, we have regular ongoing training. Uh, and, and those sort of um, things that uh, happen through the process make sure that everything does say, stay serene. Yeah. Um, you also would have noticed when you were in the control tower that it was quiet. And that's because we have an environment there where you don't actually hear the air, uh, the air ground program of the aircraft. 
mm. talking. Uh, it just goes straight into the controller headset. So the only, the only things that you will hear is what the controller is saying. Now we can turn that on, and for people when they're visiting, sometimes we might do that so they can hear what the aircraft are uh, doing and saying. But uh, in a general sense, we try and keep it uh, calm because obviously in a calmer mm. uh, work environment, it just makes you a little bit more productive and, and makes the job a little bit easier. Mm. I also think that with stress, it's how you manage that. Um, uh, you've, you, you've known me for a little bit now, and um, I use my outside activities to manage that, uh, whether it be my swimming or running. Yeah. And um, I think it's quite important that we have our, our, our stress uh, releases to ensure that yeah. we, we manage that. I, I Just listening to you and thinking about it, you know, if, you, if you were to go to work every day thinking, I've got this many lives at stake, it, it would do your head in. Oh, it would. And, and, and look, um, understand... Not turn to play it. No, and, and understand that our expectation as managers is that the <clears throat> staff prepare themselves to come to work. But what, what we all should realise as employers as uh, in any organisation is that person just doesn't t- turn up to work in a, um, in, a, in, a, in a clean environment. They bring stress from home yeah they, they bring their lives with them and uh, but again with the training the expectations by the time they sit down we, we we expect them to do their job appropriately but again there's all these outside influences that can impact on any job mm. and as you said the, the the trouble with ours is the critical nature of it it can have a little bit more of an impact and i would like to think that um, most air traffic controllers are, are extremely professional individuals mm. and uh, if there's anything that's uh, affecting their judgment that they will stick their hand up firstly ask for help or or ask to be uh, have a break or, or move away from the console mm. Does that happen? Uh, not very often. Uh, you'll find that um, we have regular breaks through the day, um, and and but asking for support and help when it gets busy, the the best way to describe it is if you're in a gym and, and you, you know you're you're pushing some weights and you only need someone's finger just to help you get do that last set. Uh, it, it's the same with air traffic control to a degree. As long as you know that someone is watching and helping. Uh, it just makes a, a, a busy situation a little mm. bit more relaxed and uh, knowing that they can uh, make sure that they, you're not missing something. So it's just providing that little bit of extra support when it's needed. We've got supervision in the tower uh, in a general sense, uh, even though people's jobs are quite specific. One person is doing ground control, one person is doing clearance delivery, one person is doing aerodrome control. We're all kind of looking out for each other too. Mm. So what, what are the skill sets involved? That make a that get trained up and make a good air traffic controller. Oh, I guess slightly OCD helps. <laughs> um, <laughs> reassuring to hear as well. Um, the, I heard long time ago there used to be a theory uh, that um, when you're looking at uh, it, it's not generally IQ based, but if you're looking at an IQ value, you would take out the top ten percent maybe because too analytical. Um, then you would exclude maybe the bottom sixty percent. And I'm only saying these words just to give you a bit of an idea of where not people fit in the spectrum, but the type of person that we might look for, uh, it's, it's not based on IQ, it's based on skill. So we'll look at um, different levels of capability in different uh, circumstances. But you need someone who, who is bright, uh, who can, who can um, solve problems, and, and to, a, to a degree, I think, actually be a little bit artistic too, because sometimes the problems aren't... Um, as clear and straightforward so yeah. they might need something a little bit outside the box to be able to resolve 
I've been a little bit involved in the recruitment space and um, so we would do our normal psychometric testing um, but on but if people are successful through the psychometric testing if they turn up for our recruitment day uh, we do this one test which is called the interrupt test so a person is actually doing a task uh, it's been modified over the years and the current one is um, using a, a, a laptop computer quite a basic thing of um, of a number of aircraft moving across it uh, and um, it's a if-then-else type situation. If it's blue, um, it must go to this corner. So there are some rules that you must follow. But then on the side, uh, there will be something else that goes on and that you must leave that task, which doesn't stop because air traffic control doesn't stop. Yes. Aircraft still fly. So then you must move to another task and solve another problem. So we're looking for people who can solve problems in a, in a moving environment and, and solve many problems at the same time. So that's probably the idyllic skill. Sometimes that's uh, learnt, and you certainly can pick that up uh, over the years. But uh, when in the recruitment time, in the recruitment phase, uh, sometimes you can see people that they're just natural at it too. Yeah. So, uh, and then and then the other things on the recruitment day that we'll do, we'll, we'll do some basic air traffic control functions. Yeah. And we're not expecting to people to be air traffic controllers. What we're expecting them to do, we give them a rule set and uh, we expect them to follow the rules. So I think that probably answers your question because at the end of the day, our, our uh, job is driven by rules. Yes. Um, they're quite, they're mandated by um, our regulator, CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. And um, so uh, we have to operate within those rules and, uh, and, and, and ensure that we keep providing the service uh, at that time through that rule set. Is there, um, is there much demand to come into the job currently? And how many jobs are there in Australia? Uh, I think we have um, about 1,300 air traffic controllers around the country. Right. Um, about 950 of them are operational. Uh, the rest of them are doing uh, other duties, uh, project work, all those sorts of things that are mm. still necessary in the background to make sure our organisation functions appropriately. Um, so there's always there's always um, when, when we open when we open the recruitment uh, there's a never-ending um, supply of people who want to become air traffic controllers. Because mm. there must be a handful of vacancies. Um, we need to. Uh, there are yes, you're right. There's probably only a handful of vacancies, but uh, again, because of, I mean, you look at my age. Um, in my late fifties, uh, you know, obviously we have natural attrition for many different reasons. People, people who are retiring, uh, people who leave the job to go overseas, people who leave a particular location to go somewhere else. Um, so we we need a regular flow of of new people, and I think that's a good thing for any workforce anyway. Yeah, to have a regular influx of of younger people who are. Uh, well, again, we don't discriminate by age, but a regular uh, influx of new people into the organisation as well is a mm. good thing. Is there, um, uh, just say that struck me this morning, is there different methodologies around the world? Or is it all pretty much the You were just about to say the phrase. I would have to describe it as all pretty much the same. Yeah. In fact, if you looked at the... Um, the, the different uh, books that we use, which which uh, codes our rule set, they would all be very very similar. Right. In fact, we're all most air, most uh, air navigation service providers around the world are signatories signatories to ICAO, 
um, the International Civil Aviation Organisation, and um, most of the rules come out of ICAO, and then those rules are coded for each location. So there might be there might be nuances, but mm. in a general sense, they're pretty much the same. And so what did that when you said that you know people go off and work in different places, like you yourself have? Essentially, the job's the same wherever you go. The job is the same, and at times the rules might be slightly different. So no, and and the other thing is you have to learn the local knowledge. Mm. So um, in my circumstance, it was uh, Bahrain and Abu Dhabi, and um, very different to um, talking to aeroplanes in Perth, and um, and has its own complexities. So um, you kind of have to adjust to that, but the the basic rule set is the same. Mm. So of the um, skill sets uh, of being a air traffic controller, how have you found them transferable to making you successful in other parts of your life? It, it, it helps you with decision making. And again, a long time ago, I heard that um, um, in, in the financial services industry, you, know, you talk about people who live in stressful jobs, work in stressful jobs, um, the, um, the financial services industry, um, particularly share traders, that's highly stressful. There was companies that I knew that were actually targeting air traffic controllers um, for that type of work. So highly stressed environments, uh, able to make decisions quite quickly. Uh, for me, uh, I think that um, it, it certainly enables me to make a decision, but I, I actually like to switch off when I come back from work too. Right. So. I try and uh, not bring my work home and, and, and just look to um, being more of a normal person when I'm at home. And when I, when I say that, I just mean enjoying, enjoying life and enjoying the gifts that I've been given. Part of those gifts is what, what my work supplies me, which is an income, so, yeah. then, so then Julie and I can enjoy uh, things outside of work. Hmm. It's, it's interesting you're talking about decision making. Do you think that the because of the fluid, the fluid environment and the sort of you've got to make a decision, does that actually help make a decision? Because I think sometimes we over we get overloaded with information, or we end up with too much time to make a decision, and then we end up procrastinating. I I, I would agree with that, and um, it's a great phrase I've been introduced to recently, which is "done is better than perfect." Exactly right, uh, and, and exactly right. So it's actually a very good way to describe it because if you've got a, if you're uh, with in a scenario at work, if you sit there and do nothing, it's it will only get worse. So if you do something and intercede, even even though it might not be the best plan to start yes. with, you've interceded and, uh, and, and therefore you can adjust as necessary. Mm. And that's the other point too, um, uh, when I talked about the creative part of air traffic control, again, we have to operate in a rule set and, and we have to uh, think ahead of the game because that makes your job a little bit easier. So you have to be able to project and plan, so you have to know kind of which way things are going. Mm. Uh, but the, the key to that too is being able to adjust the plan because if you stick to that plan, things can slightly change. Yes. And uh, if, you've, if you're not going to adjust to that, then it's only going to make it worse. Mm. So you have to be able to be able to look at a situation, have a plan. As things change, then, then change the plan as well. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's not been too married and invested in that plan because the reality of the situation means you do have to change it 
Exactly right. And and again, then you're left with the same problem you had right at the very beginning. If you're not willing to change it, the situation's only going to get worse. Mm. It's interesting when you were talking about having to plan several steps ahead. The first time I got introduced to that was uh, when I first became a parent. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, well, the baby's going to wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then I'm going to need a bottle. And yeah. The bottle needs to be close at hand. Yeah. And then it's like... <laughs> in very simple terms, uh, it, um, it, it can be as easy as... Uh, you know, I've got a five five o'clock start tomorrow morning, so I know I've got to get to bed at, at a certain time of night. And, yeah. and certainly, again, if there's family and young children involved in the house, then you've got to adjust for that. Yeah. So that, that was the point I was making before about the fact that you you bring you bring your outside influences, regardless of how good you are at at, at guarding mm. them. And then when you get to work, when you're actually sitting down and doing your job, uh, it's it's the same in that uh, when you have an evolving situation, the more you're able to look ahead, the easier it will be. But again, the key to that is being able to adjust. It's a little bit like chess, I guess, because you have to react. You have to be able, have to be able to react to what the other people are doing around you, and that can be the pilots, that can be the air traffic controllers around you, that can be uh, the ground staff um, who are also on the aerodrome. So you have to be able to react to that uh, and adjust as necessary. Yeah. So, what have you learned about yourself through your job? I'll give you one example. Um, air traffic control can give you, at times, uh, a little bit of a God complex. I relate it a little bit to being a surgeon. The medical sphere and the uh, aviation sphere are quite similar. There's very little tolerance for mistakes. The mistakes are, have high consequences. The public don't like the mistakes if they're in the medical space or the, or the aviation space. So therefore, it's really important that we get things right. Um, we have to... We have to um, we're quite critical of what we do and uh, we can have a shift and, and think, you know, that didn't quite go how I would like. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong, but things didn't quite happen exactly as I would like. So. You might be beating yourself up a little bit on the way home. Next day, everything sort of turns to gold and everything you say and do goes exactly how you plan. Yeah. Uh, you spend all your day telling people what to do and they do it. So, yeah. um, Out there in the sky. Yeah. Um, so, and, and they need to, mind. So, mm. um, because if they don't, there's consequences to that. So you can come away thinking that um, maybe you're a little bit more special than what you really are. But I think most people also are able to take that half step back and realise that they're just part of the normal community doing an important function. Mm. For me, that came about... Um, I had a very unfortunate circumstance through my career when I was in Port Hedland in the mid-'80s. Uh, I had an air traffic controller sitting next to me, and without going into great deal of detail, he had a heart attack and died. And that was an extremely confronting time for me, and uh, it happened quite early on in my career... And it just made me realise that I'm flesh and blood like everybody else. Yeah. And, um, and it kind of just made me realise that um, we're, just, we're just all here part of maybe a grander plan. And um, as long as I just get through life and don't upset anybody or hurt anybody along the way, then and that's a good thing. So that's a general sense about my life. Yeah. Uh, but within my job, um, it's kind of a little bit the same. I, I make sure that I go to, go to work and, and do the best that I possibly can. Um, uh, support my organisation the best I can and, uh, and then deal with the challenges um, as, uh, as they arise. 
Do you feel quite grateful that you've found something that you're obviously listening to, you enjoy? It gives you a great sense of reward both in the job and outside of it. It, it, that's easy for me because I still think, it, even though there was a little bit of serendipity involved in how yeah. I got here, um, it's almost like my my die was cast. It, it's the one of the best jobs ever. Yeah. Um, and and I'm not saying everyone else's jobs isn't good. Yeah. Or aren't good, um, but um, I've been very very lucky. I've been blessed with uh, a great job, a great life. Uh, and part of that is that the job gives me that life too. Yeah. Um, and there is enough interest there to keep me stimulated and interested in keeping going back to work. But I, I, if ever I get the opportunity through my Jandicott days where people learn to fly uh, as the manager down there or if people coming up to Perth Tower to have a bit of a look and see, there might be aviation students, I just use it as a recruitment exercise because I think that there, there could be much worse things in this world than people choosing a choosing a, um, a career in air traffic control because again regardless of where the next 5, 10, 15 years go with technology and for the ATC group um, it's going to be interesting it's going to be challenging uh, and uh, I think rewarding for anyone who wants to step up yeah did you ever learn to fly? no and again it, <laughs> it's funny because I really Apart from the fact that I, I find aeroplanes taking off still quite an extraordinary thing, understanding the science behind it, of course, but um, actually I have no interest. I like to get on aeroplanes when I'm sitting down the back and going on holidays, <laughs> yeah. um, but no, no interest in flying. Um, I think it's an extremely expensive hobby. Uh, you, have to be, you have to be a bit of an aviation nut to want to fly because it's either a, uh, it's either a very expensive hobby or, and I don't want to belittle, belittle pilots, but... Um, Early on in their careers, it's it's quite a hard profession because they don't get paid very much. Um, they they have to get a lot of flying hours to then. It's not all about being a captain on a on a Qantas aircraft or a Virgin aircraft or an Emirates aircraft because these guys have been around for a long, very long time before they get there, mm. and that career path can be quite challenging on many levels. Um, but ATC um, is is different because you're generally paid reasonably well. Um, from the start, and um, and the career is interesting. So I, for me, that was a, always going to be a no-brainer in that circumstance. Mm. Have you got an amusing story you can share? Not one that I could probably say over the podcast. <laughs> uh, I know I will share one. I will share one. Uh, when I worked in Port Hedland, uh, and back in those days, our organisation provided nearly every facet of the service provision on an aerodrome. Uh, we used to own houses in Port Edmonds where people's staff uh, used to stay. Um, we used to do all the electrical work on the aerodrome because we owned the aerodromes in those days. So we did all the electrics, we did all the air conditioning, uh, all the radio stuff, and we do still do parts of that now. But in those days, our organisation did everything. And there was a... Um, there was a... Uh, air conditioning mechanic who was a, a lovely young guy and uh, but the he, when he first joined in Port Hedland he got his vehicle in his vehicle it had a radio and uh, to cross a runway uh, or to go onto the aerodrome you do need a clearance from air traffic control and people would know that when you speak on a radio often at the end of the radio you can hear um, the, the clip of the radio making a funny kind of scratching noise uh, which indicates the end of the radio transmission. It's a long time since we've said over and out and those sorts of yeah, things right to indicate it. the end. 
Um, so the so when when this young chap joined, uh, he was told by the radio staff how to operate his radio, and uh, he was told that um, the vehicle he had is the, the call sign was car one four, and uh, the runway up there we had was um, uh, runway three two, and uh, so he was told that to, to cross the runway he would have to say, it's car one four, request cross runway three two. So they told him he had to say the at the end of each transmission, and that went on for like three months before he realised that uh, he didn't have to say that. And um, and and that's kind of the um, th those weren't cowboy days, but it was it, those were the days where everyone did everything together. So we used to mix, uh, we still do mix with people, but. Um, there was kind of a lot more of us in the organisation too, so we used to mix with the radio technicians, we used to mix with the pilots. Um, now now it's a little bit less so. Yeah. It's not better or worse, it was just different in those days and, and we were all friends and we all went out together and we all did things, particularly in Port Hedden, because um, the community was a very big part of, mm. of, of living up there. So uh, we were all close and, and those sort of funny stories were, were just kind of regular and part of what we did every day. So. <laughs> There you go. So what does the um, next three to five years look like for Barry? Do you know, my, my manager only asked me that question the other day. I had the um, opportunity to wish farewell to uh, one of the staff who worked for me. He just turned 60 and um, he decided to retire. Uh, air traffic controllers do go past 60, but he chose to retire. And we were just talking about retirement and those sorts of things. and. Um, and I was, while I was having that conversation with him, I was looking across the table thinking, that's actually me. That's, I'm not too far away from that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not planning retirement. I don't foresee retirement. But um, to get back to my manager, he only asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where do I see myself in five years? Uh, I will be in my early 60s then. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm not retired, uh, I certainly will have a plan by then. Um, but I, I still want to, my, my, uh, my work journey uh, probably still has some uh, pages to unfold, I guess, and uh, I still want to be able to contribute. If I, still, if I feel like I'm not adding value anymore, then I'll either take a backward step or, or, or look to leave. But uh, while that's still happening, um, I'll, um, I'll, I'll continue, and I'm still enjoying it, so there's no reason to stop. And in a personal sense, uh, for Julie and I, it's, it's just um, we like to travel. So our, our, our work space gives us that opportunity. And um, so that's kind of what, what, what we will be doing. We tend to do crazy things like look for marathons and other things to do overseas and then target them around an active holiday, which is kind of fun. Uh, through through our years of working overseas and and other opportunities, we've picked up a, a lot of wonderful overseas uh, friends and friendships, and um, we uh, we will always look to meet up with them because it gives us an opportunity to go somewhere else and see them. And so yeah, I guess I guess the plan is to just keep going and um, and until it gets too hard. We didn't really talk about the Middle East much, but they always used to say when you work in the Middle East particularly, there's two buckets, one, one for the money and one for the bullshit. When the first one fills up, it's time to leave. And, <laughs> and even though I don't feel like I'm in that circumstance uh, with my current role, uh, if, if, it, if it gets too hard or if I'm not, if I'm not enjoying it, then, um, then I'll, I'll, I'll leave because there's other things I want to do outside mm. of work um, and, and 
basically uh, looking to contribute to the community. What would, have, what would have to happen for it to get too hard? Uh, would it just be a drop in motivation? Or a not? drop in motivation, but there's, there's just nothing to trigger that at the moment. Hmm. And um, I, I think, um, so I, I would just see myself going until, until we, we pick the date, and the date will, will be the date that suits Julie and I. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so you've meant you mentioned marathon swimming. What are some of the things that you do to keep yourself uh, grounded? Because it is it strikes me as as an intense but also sedentary job sitting up in the in the tower. I've always been an active person all through my childhood, all through my adult life. Um, Different periods of time have targeted different sports. Uh, for a long time it was hockey, uh, certainly at school and at club level, and uh, played a relatively high level of hockey. Um, then uh, when we shifted overseas, even though I did play hockey, uh, living in the Middle East, it was not the major sport. So I played squash to a relatively high level. Um, I find those sorts of things keep me uh, to use your words, grounded, but also keep me healthy, fit, and motivated, keep the brain going, gets me out of bed in the morning. Most mornings, Julie and I are up at five o'clock in the morning uh, for swimming training and running training and other things. In recent years, uh, in the early 2000s, um, took up um, uh, dedicated swimming, um, several swims to Rottnest in teams, one duo with a work colleague, uh, one solo crossing, and yes, don't ask me once is enough, I'm one of the 85% of the people who will only ever do one. Um, and then from there it moved into a triathlon. I've done a couple of Ironman triathlons. I like to have goals and, and mm. the goals keep me focused. I don't need them to keep healthy and fit, but uh, it gives you the motivation to get out and train. And then the training just keeps you health and, healthy and, and, um, and, and mentally stimulated to be able to turn up to work, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in recent times, um, I started targeting marathons and uh, have been fortunate enough uh, to have done uh, a number in Australia, um, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney. Uh, if, if my body holds up, I'll look to do Gold Coast uh, next year. Uh, but also some of the highlights have been I've done Paris Marathon twice, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever done. Uh, to, the, to have the city closed down for me to be able to run 42.2 k's around yeah. it is amazing. Um, and uh, so having those opportunities, have, have run the Barcelona Marathon. When I turn 60, I want to run the Chicago Marathon. And these are just, these are just dreams that turn mm. into goals, that turn into a training program. That then happen. And then happen. And uh, I'm lucky to have people around me who support me, uh, Julie being uh, one of the most significant support people around me to help me do these things. We, we share each other's experiences, which is terrific. And then I've got a number of people around me who help me with coaching, um, who do enough yelling at me to make me get out of bed. Yeah. Um, because you need to do those things if you uh, want to achieve what you want to achieve. Mm. But I'm also of the view, as my body gets older um, and you know can be slightly more injury prone, if I don't achieve my goal, that's kind of okay. You know, mm. like it, it's not earth shattering that I, I can't run my 3:30 marathon anymore. Um, but I'm out there with 
in the Paris sense, 42,000 other people running around Paris, and that's just, mm. it's, it's an experience. And, yeah. and, and at every level, that's what should be uh, enjoyed. Mm. A lot of these, certainly I found, but uh, speaking to other people, a lot, when we undertake these big um, adventures and goals, swimming to Rottnest, doing a marathon, doing an Ironman, the, the process can be just as fulfilling as the actual achievement. And also many people seem to be drawn drawn to them for reasons that they don't become quite clear until you've done it. Sometimes it's, you know, you, you have to go on a bit of an inner journey as well as just doing that. Do you find that yourself? Absolutely. And, and it's interesting that you should put it in those terms because uh, the interesting thing about a training program and that journey, so an Ironman training program can be, um, you know, six months. Uh, you might do a race, you might do a half Ironman uh, in the meantime as a lead-up race. But to use that as an example, what I've found is it's quite a isolating insular sport. And yet what I realised through my training program is actually I'm influencing a lot of people without even realising it. You know, people are speaking to me and asking me questions and and looking at what I'm doing and not admiring me, but just thinking, you know, that's that's pretty dumb, that's pretty amazing. Um, to want to do that, swim to Rottnest the same. I mean, goodness me, swimming nearly 20 k's across that channel. Mm. Uh, in fact, I nearly died four weeks before in a scooter accident. And the biggest thing, the biggest thing that happened to me that came into my mind when I was in hospital was the fact that, not the fact that I nearly died, but the fact that I wasn't going to swim to Rottnest. Because <laughs> you set that goal and, um, and, then, uh, and, and you want to get across. But again, it's only after the fact that uh, people start asking you questions and, and, and realize, you realise that they've actually been more part of your journey than you think you have. Because, yes. again, swimming, isolated sport, isolating sport because it's uh, kind of individual. But, you know, the other thing, Bryn, I like is um, you and I together, were together on Christmas morning. Yeah. And, um, and, and not because we were meeting up. It was because we are down there with a group of people who like to be down at the beach and having a bit of a swim. And, and that's what I love and enjoy because in, in my extended network of friends there's always people that i will see down at the beach swimming there's always people down at the pool that i'll see there's always people out on the bike that i'll see that i can always say hello to because they're just they're, they're just there and mm. and i find that to a degree reassuring but really lovely mm. and again coming back to where we started there's a lot of that going on here in western australia I, you know, we're sitting here in my house. We're yeah. overlooking Preston Point Road, which is um, one of the major cycle routes. And uh, when Julie and I get the opportunity to sit on our balcony, half the time we're waving at people we know riding their bikes around the river. Yeah. Um, because, again, we're blessed with that environment where that can occur. And I don't want to end on a bad note, but I just think sometimes the providence of birth, you know, although my parents worked very hard uh, and, you know, as I said, came from immigrant backgrounds... Um, because I was lucky enough to be born here, um, I've got I've always had great opportunity, and yet you know someone born in in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know just purely and simply by where they where they've been born, they have less, and I think we should all take that half step back occasionally and realise how lucky we are, mm. because um, you know day like today we're absolutely blessed. Indeed, if you could go back to um, twenty eight, oh, thirty eight years ago which would be around about now, and give that Barry a piece of advice before he started his journey, what would that be? Finish your degree. 
But the funny thing about that is, uh, having having been on my uh, on my life's journey, um, it would have added, added no value whatsoever. I think I think sometimes making decisions without giving it, giving it a great deal of thought uh, is is a good thing. You can overthink things and overcomplicate things. Mm. I'll give you one other a, a small example. Um, my wife Julie had LASIK surgery uh, very early on when LASIK surgery, eye surgery was was uh, first starting, and it kind of just happened over a very short period of time. And it's like opening a drug where if you took out the pamphlet, there's you know four thousand words on it telling you why you shouldn't take it. But I think we should often take the opportunities as they present themselves, and uh, and then grab things with both hands and and just give everything a good shake because life's too short. We um, after we got married, I was chasing I was chasing this job overseas in Bahrain, and um, again not thinking about it too much. Right, that's leaving home. That's I mean I come from an Italian background. I mean leaving home that's a big thing, and yeah. leaving my mum it was devastating for her. So you you this I chased this job, had the interview, and nothing happened. And then someone else someone else who had an interview at the same time got the opportunity. And uh, so I rang them up and I said, oh, you know, I'm still interested. And they said, can you start in March? And um, I dropped the F-bomb a few times on the, on, the, on the phone because it meant that we were going to be packing up and we were going to be leaving. And again, it was just the most, the best experience, living yeah. and working overseas, working in the Middle East. And this was, at the, this was at the end of the first war, right? So this is 1991 where um, Iraq invaded Kuwait it made that job and that time extraordinarily interesting. And when you look at when you look at what's happened in the Middle East through history, uh, that was quite an extraordinary time. And and then you put in a young man from WA who went there to do air traffic control. That's just mind blowing in itself, right? So to get back to your question, I think it's don't overcomplicate things. Make some decisions. Um, don't don't get upset by the decisions you make and just give just give everything a good shake. Awesome. Barry, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank Brian. you very much for your time. Thanks, Brian. <laughs>